I don't know how much CO2 relative to the big issue, how much we emit every year. I'm not sure it's a huge percentage that'll be put into the ground in my uh, lifetime. But I tell you what, I want to be a part of saying, look, I blazed the trail. Uh, you know, I was one who helped put together templates and brought together some of the initial deals. And that's exciting um, to be on the forefront of an industry that is developing and, and um, uh, hopefully flourishes and blooms in the future. Welcome to the Land Department Podcast. The state of land and energy as we see it. Land Department listeners, excited for this episode that we've got on CCS. It is a fantastic conversation that dives really deep and really has a conversation around CCS at a pretty high level. And really, after editing this episode, we realized that you know, we might need to dumb it down a little bit and actually get at the ground level of what is CCS, how does it work, and why we're even having the conversation that we have today. So I brought Lauren back on to do a little bit of an intro for us. Lauren, how are you? Great. Doing good. Thank you so much, Galil. I really appreciate you jumping back on for this. So uh, let's let's do it. CCS for Dummies, what is it? How can you explain it at just the elementary level for us? Sure, sure. Um, so, so CCS stands for Carbon Capture and Storage. Uh, sometimes you will see the the phrase CCUS, where the U stands for utilization, where you try to find some other use for the carbon. I kind of set that aside for a little bit, and let's just focus on the CCS part. So carbon capture and storage is right now there are point sources throughout America. It might be an electric power generating plant, might be a chemical plant, might be an ethanol plant that today... Um, is putting CO2 that comes out of the process in that plant, it just puts it into the air, just dumps it into the air. That is um, what, what many folks believe is leading to uh, global warming, that the high levels of concentration in the air. So to combat that, now CCS says we're going to capture that CO2 before it gets into the air. Um, and so capturing involves usually a chemical process, though sometimes there's other, um, there's, there's new technology developing that may be able to capture it in other ways, but primarily it's a chemical process that grabs a hold of all of the carbon dioxide molecules that are otherwise being put into the air, and it brings it all into one uh, location, into one um, vessel, if you will. And it's basically you try to get to you try to get all of the CO2 that you can and put it into a, a pure state of carbon dioxide gas. And of course, you're you're you have it in a vessel. Now, after that, though, and this is where I joke, you know, CCS really should be CCTS, which is not a great joke. But CCTS is carbon capture, carbon capture transportation and storage, because a lot of times we. The, the S is storage, and we want to put that, that means we want to put the CO2 in the ground, but that's not always, in fact, many times it's not located where you capture it. So you have to put it in a pipeline and transport it. Now, it might be five miles, it might be 500 miles. So transportation is what I call the second leg of the stool. So you have the capture side, the first leg of the stool. You have the second leg is transportation where you put it in pipelines. And we talk about this in, in this episode. And then the third is, is storage where, you know, you, um, the, the storage operator 
will take that pure stream of CO2 from the pipeline. They'll pressure it up to about 2,500 PSI, pounds per square inch, and inject, because at that point it becomes a liquid. It's a, it's a weird, it's not exactly, but it becomes a liquid and you put it down the hole and you will pump it literally two miles down hole, not 500 feet, not in drinking water range, but you'll pump it down a well and you'll put it into rock that is currently, and this is not always the case, but, but most applications for CCS in the United States are putting into rock that is filled with salt water. So this is very, very hard rock that's two miles below the, the surface of the ground. And it basically just displaces that salt water. And then over time, it actually blends with the salt water. And then even in more time, it blends with the rocks. So it becomes permanently stored in the rocks. Um, yeah, so, so that's the CCS part of it. That was fantastic. And I know that that's going to bring so much context for people who have really never heard of CCS, and this is their first introduction to it. So excited to talk about CCS and really the state of CCS. Appreciate you jumping in on the intro. We'll pass it on to our full conversation with, uh, with Brent as well. Thanks, Lauren. You bet. Brent, we've got a, we've got a guest here with some, some video experience. <laughs> we do. We do. Yeah, Lauren. Yeah. The, to the land department. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to the discussion today. It's going to be, going to be a fun discussion. Since Khalil and I have been talking about, this has been a topic we wanted to touch on in the podcast because it's new, it's different, people have a lot of questions about it, a lot of people are getting involved in it, but really the industry is trying to figure it all out, really. And um, For sure. So I was flipping through LinkedIn one day and I saw Lauren there just going through the basics and I said, this is perfect. And obviously his experience and his, as his videos progressed, uh, he really got into the details. God, this would be perfect. So. I reached out to Lauren just out of the blue randomly and uh, said, Hey man, I'd like to meet you. And I want to visit a little bit about this. And we got to talking about his involvement and our involvement and what we do on the land side. And I just thought it'd be great. And he was kind enough to jump in and, and join us today. So I'm looking forward to the, to the visit, Lauren. Absolutely. It's a, uh, it's a really relevant topic for what you guys are doing. And um, you know, it is new and people are trying to figure it out. And so you know, I think it's, uh, there's a bunch of stuff to hit on today that I think are super relevant to, to people that you guys are, are working with. So absolutely. Excellent. Well, we're, we're so excited to have you. And uh, for listeners that do want to check out the videos that you do, we'll put a, a link to your LinkedIn page in our show notes that they can check you out at. So let's jump right into it. Let's talk about CCS. Why CCS? Absolutely. Why are we here today? Well, you know, uh, when, when people think about how to address uh, global climate change, you know, the, the reality is um, the, the experts agree it is going to be incredibly difficult to make meaningful um, progress in fighting climate change if, if CCS is not involved. So, you know, carbon capture and storage, removing, uh, at least starting from uh, stopping the amount of emissions that are heading into the air and put in and, and putting those underground. And then there's another discussion we can get into a little bit later about, well, how do we, you know, address what's already there? But but with there, there's just no way to to really make meaningful progress without CCS being a part of it. Outside of if you want to entirely kind of wreck the global economy and just say no, we're not going to do anything else. But 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 that's why I love CCS is because it's still 
it is a way to address what we're doing right right now without still without wrecking our entire economy and putting us back into the stone age so uh, it, it's just a great tool. And, and, and the thing is, it's actionable. We're going to talk a lot about that today. I mean, it's, it, we're not talking about high-tech stuff that um, you know, has never been done before. This is high-tech stuff that we do all the time. So it's, it's really great from that standpoint as far as, you know, just, hey, we, we know this. We're not out there on some technological limb, you know. So it, it's, um, it's just a key, key tool in our fight against uh, global climate change. Yeah. And obviously, we're seeing a ton of incentives poured into CCS at this point. Maybe explain to us how we got here in this, yeah. in this case. Yeah, you know, I mean, the, the big change that was very, very recent has been the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. So just last year, and, and some people say, well, what does Inflation Reduction have to do with it? I, I don't know. It was, a, it was a name that I think was a political win for a certain senator from West Virginia. But, but look, regardless, it, it had a lot of elements in dealing with um, really enhancing the incentives for CCS. But there actually has been what's called 40, Section 45Q of the IRS tax code. It's actually been around since 2008. So there's been some incentive where you can, where companies can get t- effectively tax subsidies from the government for permanently storing CO2. But it wasn't at, a, at an economical level. I mean, before it was like $50 uh, per metric ton of CO2 that you put in the ground. And, and that just didn't, uh, that was not economic to anyone. Mm-hmm. Well, with, with IRA, it went up to $85. So a 70% increase uh, in the amount of, of tax subsidies. And it was also now not just an income tax credit. It was now a, a direct payment for at least part of the time. So that all of these things made it, uh, just much more attractive. And it just almost overnight, people just started jumping in. They've been thinking about it, kind of investigating it. Some companies had more experience with with uh, carbon transportation and, and putting it into the subsurface. In fact, that's been going on, by the way, in America since 1972. So let's be real clear about that. We've been putting CO2 in the ground for enhanced oil recovery for literally since I've been born. So, so that's been a... Um, uh, that's been a known technology, but just the IRA just supercharged everything. So now you just see people uh, really, really diving into it. It did address other things, uh, hydrogen, um, you know, there's uh, re- renewable natural gas. There's been some other things that are also in the Inflation Reduction Act that that relate to kind of this energy transition. But CCS was the one that really people got uh, pretty excited about because of the incentives that were put into place. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of one of the things that, that Lauren and I talked about in our previous conversations is, is the who, right? And to his point, the, the, the industry, particularly the oil and gas industry, has been using this technology and using this logic for a long time for their EOR um, right. in West Texas and all over the U.S. Um, and it's, it's funny to see the ones that are, are, appear to be the most successful right now are those that had that knowledge, had that experience, um, had transportation in place. And, and so the IRA really changed the economics of all these projects and really opened their eyes to, okay, how can we further expand what we already know? And those are the groups that have really been successful and really hit the ground running more so than other groups who are trying to figure out, okay, this works for us financially now. What do we do? How do we do it? Um, and, yeah. so, and that's the learning curve that we you know all alluded to. Some were just a little further ahead. Some made investments in other areas that, are turning out to be 
you know, wins for them and allowing them to expedite their, their growth in the space. Um, but, you know, we, we thought today we would talk about just the different perspectives of these types of projects. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got, you've got really three groups or components to it. You have the emitter, you know, the easier refineries and all the other things that emit CO2. And then there's the, the transportation component. Okay. You've captured those emissions. Now you're going to transport it to ultimately the injection site. And that's the store, the storage component of it. So, uh, maybe we thought maybe Lauren, you could walk, help walk us through that. You know, I guess it, it all starts at the emitter, right? Yeah, absolutely. And to be clear, under 45Q, it's the emitter who gets the either direct payment for five years or the uh, the investment tax credit uh, for the remainder of the time. So there, it does start with them. You're exactly right, Brent. Um, and and really, they're the ones. You know, they have the carbon. And this is this is um, largely addressing obviously point sources. So everything from ethanol plants to methanol plants, which those, by the way, have been the most economic so far because they have this really pure stream of CO2. So it's easy to capture, but it goes all the way up to like electric uh, generating plants powered by natural gas um, and everything in between. So chemical plants, so all the cement, steel, all of these things are point sources that emit CO2 and they have to decide, well, look, is it, it, it does take a significant investment to be able to capture that instead of putting it into the air. And so the CCS starts with capture and, and putting in a process in place, instead of having it go up into your flu stack and out into the atmosphere, can you put some equipment in place to capture it? And then of course, like you said, you got to transport it and then you got to find some place to store it. And all those things have to come together. So the emitters, it really does start with them. It really does start with them doing the analysis of, you know, is it going to be economical? Because, you know, there are maybe some people who want to have a good public relations story about how they are contributing to the fight against climate change. But from what I've seen so far, the emitters are still driven by economics and, and, you know, they still need to be incentivized to do it. Yeah. yeah there's going away. No, no, no. I mean, they're, at the end of the day, these companies are still there and they're accountable to their stakeholders to, um, and shareholders specifically to to make money, and and you know that that's a part of it. And so what you see is there's this spectrum, uh, as I mentioned, of of some types of point sources are much more economical and and easily fit under the eighty five dollars. They're quote in the money right now. You know, ethanol is an easy one to do. Um, there are certain there are certain ammonia plants, especially that because they have this really high concentration of CO two. It's just it's like almost changing the piping. You just move it from heading into the air to heading down to that, that pipeline, which takes it to the storage site. So much easier. And, and so it's the, the harder ones where, you know, the steel industries, the cement industries, where they have to really go through and, and do the economics analysis. And, and that's where I think it's going to be interesting to see how over time the capture technology, uh, you know, there's some really smart people working on, uh, you know, how do we enhance it? They're, Again, the oil industry has been taking CO2 out of uh, streams for a really long time. So, so you know, now what has, um, the, how do we do that into other industries now? And yeah. so they're, they're really thinking about what does that look like and, and how do, what technology is there that's going to allow that to happen? Yeah, speaking about the technology, I mean, where does the, you hear a lot of conversation about, you know, direct air capture, you know, hear that, that coming, I mean, 
where does that tend to, where do you think that's going to go? I mean, where do you, you see the best use case for that technology? I, I kind of, I guess the question is where, um, what types of capture do you tend to see? I mean, you mentioned earlier, there's some, it's just a matter of, in layman's terms, redirecting, right? And into your yeah. pipeline, but what other forms of capture are out there? Well, you know, the, um, the, the, the exact technology to do it is, is variable. Some is chemical, some are involved. You know, most of it involves chemical um, where you, you get certain solvents that will, will, will get this thing CO2 and then later have to, to take it away. And, and it, anyway, it, we won't get into a bunch of technology there. Some of it's membrane. But, you know, when you think about, um, you know, the, the various places, direct air capture is a can of worms because there are a lot of people out there that are, violently against direct air capture right now it is so expensive to to be um to capture i mean think about it it's 400 parts per million co2 in the air right now versus you know orders of magnitude higher even for the most you know dilute um electric power generation plant out there so direct air capture a lot of people are questioning the economics of that yeah. now in the in the IRA, direct air capture is like twice, maybe even three times as much uh, economics incentive is there, you know, as form of tax subsidies for direct capture. Even with that, that still is generally most people say until some technology changes, that's just not happening. Yeah. So um, then you're left with, well, all these other, you know, uh, plants throughout the U.S., whether it's chemical plants or whatever, are thinking about, well, how much is it going to cost us? to not only capture it, but then transport it. And then also the storage operator is going to charge us some money too. So all of that has to meet in $85, which $85 is got to pay for all that and give a return, you know, to make it worth, uh, worth the company doing. Yeah. When you talk about the, the economics of that, I mean, the, the players, right. That, that you see in the storage game, at least is, is Dudley's exposure to it. Cause you know, these companies who want to build these storage projects come to us, they need land capture. Uh, but, you know, the clientele that you see in all of my peers in the industry, it's, it's the majors. You know, any client that's hiring us to do this, most of the time also you'll see them on refineries. Um, so that right. makes sense, right? It helps the bottom line economically for a large corporation that has a refining component, you know, a downstream component and an upstream, you know, skill set to be able to develop these storage projects. So that makes a ton of sense. So, you, you know, so we okay, kind of touched on the, the emitter portion of it. Then you got to get it to the storage site, right? So that's the whole other game changer that we're seeing as well. I mean, some people have been in the game, as you pointed out earlier. Others are trying to figure out yeah. how I now I've got I've got land capture. Maybe I have a deal struck with an emitter. Now what? <laughs> you know? And, yeah, right? exactly. And and it really and and that is going to be uh, just a, a huge issue going forward. Um, you know, it, it, transportation is a, is a key piece of it. There's two ways that people are approaching it, and, and both of them have their pros and cons. One is just repurposing existing natural gas lines. So, or, or really, it could be any kind of line that's out there. And so they say, well, we're going to just make sure it has the integrity to be able to handle CO2. We're going to make sure we don't put any water in there because water and CO2 cause acid and that's never good, right? But um, so then to say, instead of doing natural gas, we're going to transport CO2. Now, here's the thing that's interesting from a land perspective. You know, these, a lot of these pipelines have been there, I don't know, 40, 50 years, some of them. 
And they, they had a right of way that was, um, you know, drawn up between the transporter and the landowner. And that right of way, if they're older right of ways tend to be, and, and, and Brent, this is where you guys need to, to, to weigh in because you know way about more about this than I do. But from, from an operator standpoint, we've seen that we, we have right of ways that give general latitude to be able to transport anything. But some of the newer ones and maybe more sophisticated owners when they did those right away say no no it's only natural gas that you can transport so even when you repurpose a line of the the owner of that line is going to have to go back and go wait a minute do i actually have the right to transport co2 across this particular landowner's piece of property and and so that's a really interesting dynamic that's happening out there right now um of course the other thing is you can just build new pipelines right well, of course, that's a huge undertaking to get all the right of way that's required for that to to build it takes a long time. And then the permitting side is a really can be a bear um, as well as dealing with local stakeholders. I mean, you have local communities that really um, have some concerns and they want to know what's going on. They want to have their voice be heard. Uh, they want to make sure that their communities are being protected and all that's great. Um, as usual, the oil industry is not great with engaging with communities, though a lot of them are realizing in this case, if we're going to build a new pipeline that's going to be transporting it, um, we need to do a great job of engaging with our communities and making sure they understand uh, what this is. And so both approaches really kind of have their pros and cons, um, but uh, it's, it's never easy. But that is a huge piece of it. And if you can't link up the emitter to the storage side, <laughs> It doesn't do any good. You really have to have all three at the same time. Well, that's really evidence by, you know, the, the locations uh, that we tend to do these types of projects in. You know, they're all very close to a matter. The land grab over the last 12 to 18 months has been insane. You know, people, everybody's blowing their place, yeah. right? They're trying to get a, enough, enough acreage um, secured to be able to build these projects. And they don't want to have right. to be, you know, held captive by the Viper or they don't want to build, you know, right. 200 miles worth of pipeline or 50 miles worth of pipeline. So, right. you know, the, the, the right of way, you know, kind of greenfield right of way work that we're seeing is, is short, right? It's, it's maybe we've secured enough rights with a large landowner and we're filling that in with smaller owners, but you know, they don't want to build, you know, any more than 10, 15, 20, 30 miles worth of pipe at, at the most. And it's offsetting. Yeah. And, and to kind of, go back to your point about how complicated some of these right-of-way agreements are that we see differences geographically, you know, the concerns of a South Texas cattle rancher, you know, and maybe the sophistication of a South Texas cattle rancher around Corpus Christi is going to be different than someone who really hasn't dealt with a lot of pipeline, you know, in the upper Midwest around an ethanol facility. For sure. Um, and so, yeah, you see different considerations, you know, whereas in South Texas, you've got some CO2 pipe out there. You know, and, and then yeah, potentially strike a deal. Uh, you may have to tie into that pipe. So then you're going to cross a big ranch and those people, are, those are business partners more than they are someone giving you a right of way. I mean, they're very. Absolutely. Um, but you get up in other parts of the world, of the country and right of way is a new thing. Some oil and gas companies showing up, you know, talking about carbon sequestration. That's a foreign subject. It's a foreign language to start with. And then. You know, then you throw political winds into it and, and, you know, it's a challenging, challenging thing to get past. And I think that's been the biggest challenge for both these storage companies who are trying to put these projects together and the land people that, um, you know, that are trying to help. 
and, and doing and working for yeah. the, the storage company. And, um, but you know, it's, it's with all things, it sounds easy until you really get into it. Yeah. That's exactly right. I mean, people, yeah, I've seen that myself is where, you know, people fly at 30,000 feet and they talk about how great CCS is and it is, but then you get into the weeds and you're like, oh my goodness, this is way more complicated than I really hoped for. But I think one trend we're going to see is, is I do think you, you alluded to this earlier is that I think you're going to see more storage sites located closer to the emitters. Just the idea that even if it's within a state, just the idea that you want to put together a pipeline that is, you know, this massive undertaking, and, and especially if it spans multiple states and you get the federal government involved, I, I just think a lot of people are going to be like, you know what, that, that's just not worth it. You need to find almost co-located uh, storage sites with the emitters, um, or at least very close. Um, you know, just in fact, the, the Bloomberg had an article a couple weeks ago. You know, just talking about this massive effort for, I think it was a navigator pipeline to go across from like Illinois up into North Dakota. Now, North Dakota has some storage sites that are great, and that's why they want to do it. Uh, the same thing with, in Wyoming as well. Those sites have been permitted. And so you're like, oh, great, we, we've got a storage site to put it. But um, just the, the monumental effort that it takes to do those types of projects I, I think they're going to be a big turnoff. And so the trend I think we're going to see on the, on the transportation side is, is probably what, what you're seeing, Brent, is just shorter uh, runs of the pipelines and, and looking for more localized solutions, um, which in a lot of ways is probably a better outcome anyway. People always get skittish about, wait a minute, why are you sending you know, something from a whole different state that doesn't involve me, may benefit them, but you just want to come across my property what benefit is that to me? I don't really, some people have a hard time resonating with that plan. So, so I think the more localized solution is probably where it's going. If I had to guess. Yeah, for sure. Or depending on your economics, if you're, um, if you already have that infrastructure in place to transport CO2, then it opens up the world for you. Right. Um, yeah. You know, and, and that's more seeing, we'll start to see some of the kinders and groups like that put projects together and storage projects together in random places. <laughs> You know? uh, yeah, because well, they don't. Well, you know, they, look, the acreage captures cheaper. You know, they can they can identify one landowner along thousands of miles of pipe. You know, that allow them to build a project, and uh, so everybody's got their well, plan, that, right? Yeah, yeah. Having that having that legacy CO two pipeline is a huge deal. Having infrastructure that is is can be repurposed is huge. I mean, look at Exxon; they bought Dinberry. And I just was talking to an executive at Exxon just a, a, on Friday and, and it was like, yeah, we bought it for their green pipeline. I mean, that was it. You know, that was the reason they bought it was because they had this massive CO2 pipeline in place, operational. And they didn't buy it for all the, you know, the oil and gas fields. They bought it for that. And, and that's just such a huge advantage to be able to run off of that line and be able to... You know, just you can find some spots, but it, but that that infrastructure is just so important. it is. And and we Dudley does some work with Denberry uh, up in the Rockies, and it's been great and interesting to learn as I talk to those guys and learn more about their business and what they do. I had no idea. That, I mean, those guys were active with storage projects from day one because they knew the value of it. Right. And um, whole yeah. team, those the guys on that side of their business have been just blowing and going and and building 
you know, tie-ins to their storage projects. And it was just like a big old beautiful piece of candy for a company like Exxon. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It, 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 it really jumpstarts them and it was valuable and they paid yeah. for it. So yeah, well, that's their model. It makes sense for them. Yeah, for well, sure. I build it when we can buy sure. it, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. What's your... Oh, you couldn't replicate that line now. I mean, that's the thing. You you cannot replicate something like that. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, into or or without eminent domain. Yeah. I mean, it's anymore. It's just nearly impossible to build any kind of pipeline without eminent domain. I mean, it's just more and more people are cognizant of you know their rights and and you know they've got the, the environmentalists behind them and things like that. And to your point, you know, hey, I'm a landowner. I, land is not cheap anymore. Um, you know, why would I want a pipeline right across it? You know, and perceptions right. are what they are. Um, you know, it's it's a challenge. I mean, buying right away nowadays is 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 tough for any kind of thing, whether it's gathering. Uh, hell, I was talking to the clients of ours in North Louisiana in the Haynesville or natural gas play. Um, and there's a tremendous amount of pipe in the ground there. Just in the last two, three years, I mean, rates for pipeline right away have gone through the roof. And that's just for a small rate inch. Right. So, I mean, imagine trying to put in, you know, 100 mile worth of CO2 pipe. Without yeah, no, it, yeah, it's a tough, it's a tough deal. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I mean, all right, we, we talked about pipe. Now we have storage. Um, so who are the players? So, you know, we kind of touched on it earlier. I mean, what are you seeing? Or do, you, do you tend to see the emitters also being the storage folks? Or, I mean, what's your experience? Who do you feel like, who do you feel like is going to be ultimately rise to the top in the storage side of things well you know you, you, we mentioned one name in particular denberry was out there early they've got a bunch of sites that they are already um you know applying for class six permits which we can talk about that more but that's a key thing that you need to be able to have a storage site as a class six permit um you know and, and a lot of it depends on where you're at is how easy it is to get that permit but so denberry is huge they're they're starting out there of course exxon's going to have their own uh, a lot of the super majors are going to certainly have storage projects that um, that service their own emissions, like from their own refinery. Shell comes to mind. They have a couple of there, but they may also expand in taking third party gas as well, third party CO two really as well. Um, but you know, one one of the early movers, of course, was Talos and Carbonvert. And you know, Talos just got out there, and when the Texas GLO General Land Office offered up one of their state waters off of Jefferson County. Uh, they they jumped on it, and you know it's imperfect, but they just did a great job um, getting out there ahead of everyone. They teamed up with Carbonvert, um, who who has some expertise in that as well. That evolved over time, where they they got the lease from the GLO, and and that by the way, offshore. And we we need to talk more about this as far as storage goes, but offshore places like state waters. It's just a, a wonderful place to be. The geology is, is fabulous. Uh, you don't have as many landowner owner issues. Um, there's not as much. It's a little bit out of sight, out of mind. Uh, still incredibly safe. Um, a little bit more expensive, to be sure, to put stuff in the water, but still a great spot. So, so they had a great idea. So good that Chevron came in and wanted to get into the, the partnership. Chevron now operates a partnership. They have 50% ownership. And then you just saw that Equinor, you know, this massive international oil company out of Norway came in and bought out Carbonberg just last week. And, um, you know, it, it, it shows how 
having a, a great storage site is so critical. Uh, for a company like Equinor to come in and play in state waters of Texas um, and to combine with, with Chevron and Talos, I mean, that is, is real validation of the idea. You know, they're out there. Equinor has a ton of expertise in, in carbon sequestration over time. And some of it uh, hard-earned mistakes, but you know they they have an incredible amount of expertise, and they they saw the value. You see companies like Repsol, a, a huge uh, Spanish company, coming and participating in the next sale or or leasing opportunity that the GLO had near Corpus Christi. Um, so you know those types of companies are out there. I think they recognize how important geology is as well as location to emitters. As we talked about before, just not wanting to, if you don't have to, not wanting to make these huge, you know, uh, transportation investments. Now, so, so those are some of the companies that are really out there doing well. Chevron, by the way, has a, did a, like a hundred thousand acre leasing uh, uh, effort yeah. in Southeast Texas to put as a part of that, that uh, Talos carbon vert, um, project in, near Jefferson County. So clearly they are going yeah. all in as well. Um, so yeah, those are the people I think of. There's some small ones out there. There's some entrepreneurial folks, but I think it's going to be large companies who have patience and have a balance sheet that are really going to probably oh, wow. end up uh, doing yeah. the bulk. Of and the and I guess, you know, you're right. There are some smaller groups and private equity back groups that are in the game, you know, and it's really kind of part of that land grab. And you, you nailed it. I mean, it, I know a number of brokerage companies. We were one of them that were out competing for all that acreage in, in Southeast Texas. I mean, you look at yeah. just the refining that goes on in that part of the world alone. I mean, it's a it's a right place. And so, I mean, we were in there competing from an acreage capture standpoint with three other major companies. And, um, you know, it got interesting real yeah. quick, um, you know, especially for the larger landowners. Yeah. I mean, they were they were gold, right? Um, you know, and they're, they're reaching that. Oxy. Oh, one other name. One of yes, I, I forgot about Oxy, baby, because and they're one of those that are really um, a legacy oil and gas company. You know, they they've been in for EOR time. just for a long time, and uh, the, some of the very earliest. So it just made natural sense that they were going to leverage that technical expertise that they have. They have a huge balance sheet. They have patience and you know, really had a vision for it. And so Oxy definitely is another huge one that's out right. there. And uh, they're, they're involved in direct air capture. And so, yeah, they're, yeah, they're I mean, really trying to do all of it. Those guys, Conical Phillips, again, just kind of going back to anybody you see on a refining, refinery when you're driving down I-10. I mean, the, those are the players. What we're seeing from a land standpoint are some of the more, you know, private equity-backed groups um, doing these projects in the upper Midwest, you know, around the ethanol, you know, around... And, you know, the refining that happens, you know, steel manufacturing and stuff like that in the upper Midwest. That's where we tend to are seeing some of the, the PE back groups that are going there and say, look, I can't compete with Chevron or Exxon, you know, on the Gulf Coast, but I can go up here and on a smaller scale, you know, maybe build a project that makes sense. So um, be interesting to see over the next three, four, five years how that pans out. You know, if some of these guys, you know, private equity groups would be able to hit a home run and maybe grab the right piece of dirt, maybe provide value and uh, get lucky there. But we're seeing the same thing. I mean, so from the, you know, you, you really touched on the offshore being so viable and it, it's so viable because of proximity to the emitters. 
um, and you eliminate the land component of things, you know, the, the, the storage and the acreage capture and the leasing, the competition for leasing and, and things like that, which is, you know, obviously where a lot of us brokers have gotten involved with when you start dealing with private landowners. Um, what's the, let's visit a little bit about, you know, who, where's the economic impact, right? You know, we talked about, you know, uh, earlier about who, who wants a pipeline going across their property from CO2 from one state and they're storing somewhere else. But for those people who the landowners or landmen that are working on an onshore storage project, like what's the, the the biggest challenge that we've had negotiating these deals is education. You know, what is, what is this, <laughs> you know, yeah. and how does it make money and what's market? Well, I don't know what market yeah. is because there hasn't been one. What, what's right. the, how does the, how does the landowner, what are yeah. you seeing typically for landowners, you know, as far as how are they making money? How does this work for them? You know, we, we know the benefit, the economics of the emitter. We know the, yeah. maybe the economics of person who has control of pipe. What's the economics for the, the people that are involved in these projects on the ground? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, that, that is definitely evolving. Um, but, but you're starting to see some, some coalescing around some general framework. Look, I mean, because so many oil and gas companies are involved, they, they want to do things that are also familiar to them. So what I'm seeing is in the deals between the, the, the storage operators uh, and the poor space owners, which is generally in Texas and Louisiana, and again, I don't want to get over my skis here, but it's generally been the landowners, surface landowners. Um, you can talk about that. You can correct me if I need to. But but for whoever owns the poor space where this CO2 would be injected into, um, you know, they're, they're, largely you see an upfront bonus, and that's just to secure the right for you know a certain term, maybe two or three years to give that storage operator some time to actually get a class six permit, which is not trivial. And I think that's one thing to consider is when you think about term is that has been a long process and, and can take a while. And then there's a construction phase. Once you get the permit, that's maybe two or three years again. So it's a typical upfront bonus with rentals due during those you know yearly rentals on some percentage of the bonus every year. Um, of course, all this is negotiable. And then where the big money is made in my mind for the poor space owner is really comes in a, in, in, in basically like a royalty payment. And what I'm seeing is mostly this is a dollar per metric ton that is um, given to the poor space owner. Now, the one thing is we do have some go-bys in that the state of Louisiana, which is a re very, very active place for, for CCS and they have some great geology you can go out on their website right now at the, the Louisiana Department of Natural Resources, specifically the Office of Mineral Resources, OMR. They posted the deals that they have done, and it looks very much along these lines. And so that's a benchmark. Right now, the most recent one is $7.50 per metric ton. $7.50 per metric ton have been the most recent deals done with about uh, 400 450 if I remember yeah. right, dollars per acre. Um, so it, it's, and then, then there's the, you know, there's different ways to do it is do you keep paying rentals after that? Eh, most oil companies don't like that, but especially if you're, and, and, and that's really where the, 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 in that royalty payment, call it, you know, the 750 a ton or whatever the number turns out to be, um, you know, that's where the state of Louisiana and where I think generally most landowners are going to make their money. Because if you're talking about, 
you know, you have 200 million tons that you're going to put into the ground. Well, that's yeah. pretty big money over time. Yeah. I mean, that's billions of dollars. And, you know, you're going to be doing it in 10 million tons, especially on the, some of the larger sites in Louisiana, five to 15 million tons per year. So when, when you think about that, that's some real money. And I think that's where the storage owners, I think, as always, um, that's where they make money. Now, it's just always this, you know, Brent, you, you know about this. I mean, it's all about whether or not you think there's a chance that you're going to get to the, the, the phase of the project where you're actually injecting CO2, right? Who do they, do, do they have a chance of getting? Yeah, whose wagon do I hit to? Yeah. And we're, yeah, you know, exactly. one of the considerations exactly. we saw, you know, everything that we've yeah, seen has been it. very similar to that. I mean, you nailed it. That most of these players are oil and gas companies. One of the considerations that, you know, we worked through with our clients early on was, okay, what sounds familiar? You know, how do we get past this knowledge barrier with, with the people we're negotiating with? So, all right, they're familiar with a bonus consideration. They're com- familiar with, at least in most cases, a, a, a delayed rental, right? Uh, and they're familiar with a role. So then it became it came down to okay who has the best economics on a given in a given location right and and you know we there were places right. that we were successful because our economics were better in that area you know that part of the state and there were places that our economics were blown out of the water you know by a competitor because they were close to their own yeah. emissions you know and and so they could pay more their economics made more sense to pay more give more favorable terms to landowners so. You know, we always tell landowners like, okay, don't just, you know, this is what you need to understand. This is why don't look at me as a landman as being a horrible person. I'm trying to run one over you. It's limited. These are the economics of my client. It's what makes sense for us, you know, in this particular circumstance. And also, yeah, you know, don't, you have to understand that a number you heard, you know, on a project in Corpus Christi may not apply to a project in Jefferson County, you know, um, but because of the circumstances. Absolutely. Yeah, I, as a as a petroleum engineer, you know, someone who's been working really in the uh, economics and business side of of the of the business for a really long time. Look, ultimately, this is going to be a very similar story to the upstream oil and gas business in that rock quality wins. <laughs> and if you have good rocks, you are going to that is going to be valuable, and people will pay for it. Um, you know, unfortunately, from a landowner perspective. Uh, you may not have a great view as to, you know, the same view as usual as the oil company does, uh, because they've got their seismic there. They're looking at how great it is, how much storage capacity. They know what it's worth. And so part of it is, yeah, making sure there's an education there and, and understanding how good the rock can be. But you, but you, you said it earlier, you can't just it's not going to be the same everywhere. There may be certain parts, certain uh, parcels of land that are just don't have the storage potential that another uh, piece of land may, you know, a hundred miles away. It can, it can vary a lot. And so I think, um, but ultimately the reason like the state of Louisiana can get 750 a ton, which is a lot, it's just a big piece of the pie. Honestly, it really is a, a pretty large piece. So the reason they can get that uh, is because the geology that the, the operators are looking at there is just really good. And they scale ultimately is going to win. So if they can put in 500 million tons, yeah, eh, they can pay 750 a ton because ultimately they're going to they're going to make up they're, they're going to make money. 
so the high quality rock is really critical. And so that's what, that may be hard to, for some folks to, to kind of come to grips with that, uh, as, as with the upstream business, I may not have a great spot, may not have great rocks underneath my parcel. Yeah, I guess land. we'll see how that all shakes out. It's, <laughs> it's been a difficult, uh, difficult sell for yes. some people, but you exactly. know, I think there's a lot of this, at least on the onshore side of things, yeah. you know, where, where landmen really come into play. Um, things are starting to settle in. Everybody's kind of got their, their sandbox. And uh, now we'll see how these projects go. You mentioned earlier the, the permitting process. You know, that's such a huge part of it. What are you seeing there with yeah. classic permits? I mean, what's the, what can people expect? You know, you talked about primary term of these deals, you know, and well, initially we thought, yeah, maybe we need two to three years, but very soon we, we switched to, we might need <laughs> six years or eight or 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a massive part of it. And, and here's how it's shaping up. I'm, you know, the, with the IRA, uh, as we said earlier, the uh, interest has just really skyrocketed. So, so many companies and potential storage operators have put in permits, applied for class six permits to the EPA. The EPA, except for two states and almost a third, they are the ones that run the class six permitting program. Now, there's the state of Wyoming and North Dakota that have gotten primacy, which means they are their agencies, their local Department of, of Energy or Environmental Quality, I think in both states, it actually is the one that runs the permitting process as opposed to the EPA. Now, the EPA, you know, they'll supervise whatever, but, but it's in the hands of the state, which ultimately um, any kind of underground injection control program, which all of these whether it's EOR or waste or whatever, really is intended to be in the hands of the state. But the problem that this has happened is, is that if you're not in one of those states that have primacy, and by the way, Louisiana should have primacy by the end of this year, but if you're not in one of those states, the EPA's backlog is massive and it is growing every day. And they have been really slow. They're actually, the only, they don't, there's only two class six permits in the entire country that the EPA has uh, approved and is operational has been operational uh, in the past like 15 years. And, and it's just, and the backlog now is growing. So the problem for landowners to think about is that if, if you're in Texas, as an example, as opposed to being across the state line in Louisiana, that, that get the time that it's going to take to get a class six permit in Texas may really be a long time. It may be three years. I don't, I don't know, but but everyone says, oh, 24 months. But, you know, right now, you, there's no track record that the EPA has where they can say, oh, no, look. The only track record they have is no subpar performance, and, 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 you know, and, and slowly down. down. You know, I mean, that's, that's the track. That's what you can't absolutely, expect. Absolutely right. Yeah. And so I, and slowing things down. Yeah, it's exactly. And, and, and even to get more, um, it, it gets even more complicated because there isn't a clear um, there, there isn't a clear view that even within the EPA and the current administration, that there is, that everyone's rowing in the same direction, so to speak. There are some people who are ideologically driven, who don't want to, quote, help the oil and gas companies solve this problem that they think they created. And so they don't want to, they don't want to help that. And so getting those permits through. Now, some people say, no, no, the EPA just needs more staffing. Uh, you know, I've heard it both ways. So I, that's why there's just such this uncertainty around that timing, which is why storage operators, when they're negotiating these, these leases, are probably going to 
be shooting for a longer time to get that and a little bit more lenient uh, terms to be able to, uh, on that first, you know, that, that first stage yeah. of, hey, what, is, what time do I have to get this permit? And so that's probably what you're seeing because the story is not great. Lauren, you mentioned earlier that Louisiana was near getting their primacy. And I'm curious, what was that process like? How did they initiate it? And what does that look like for other states that might be interested in getting their primacy as well? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think Louisiana was just, they were very early on, very progressive as far as recognizing that at some point uh, carbon capture was going to be a thing. I think this was, they were seeing this before, you know, kind of in the 19, 2019-2020 stage, because it did take, I think, two, maybe almost three years to get primacy um, from EPA. So, you know, they were ahead of the, the curve. Texas is kind of heading that direction, but is not at all. I don't know that they've actually had an official submission to the EPA requesting primacy. And usually there's a, a, a recycle, you know, stage in there and it just takes some time. So I would expect it takes two to three years. Uh, as I mentioned, Wyoming, North Dakota have it. Uh, also, amazingly enough, Arizona is looking to get it. And then there's one other out there um, that is one other state that's out there that is also looking for, but it, it escapes me right now, maybe somewhere in the Midwest, but, but um, not, you know, Texas is not even kind of in the game yet. Uh, they had some kind of internal bickering about what agency would control that. And so that set them behind as far as submitting. So, you know, the, and here's, oh man, here's where it gets worse. I, I, I don't be a downer here to anyone, but, but, I believe the EPA wants the states to have primacy because they are, are they just do a better job of knowing it. And again, that that anything under injection control is usually with the states now. So so if Texas, if everyone knows Texas is going to eventually apply for primacy, is there a lot of motivation for the EPA to, to be approving a bunch of permits when they frankly would rather have that beyond Texas? So what happens in the the time that it takes to get primacy. Is there any movement at all? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, if I, if I knew the future, you know, I'd be sitting on some Island in the Bahamas, but I'm not. So, so I could be totally wrong. You know, maybe the EPA will move that along, but uh, they may not either. <laughs> so we'll have to see how that plays out. I guess it's, it's kind of where we're at is a lot of wait and see, you know, and, and it is. Unfortunately, it's a lot of wait and see. And I think that's why, you know, companies and, and this is why emitters and every every uh, player in in kind of the supply chain or food chain, if you want to call it, is is a little bit waiting to see how the permitting uh, sorts itself out. And I think this is a bit where, uh, you know, even companies that got in early, they're still at the permitting stage of waiting on that permit. I mean, they've they've. they've Submitted the permit, everything's great, but they're still just waiting. And so I think there's going to be a lot of people that are in that wait and see mode to see, you know, when, how, how quick could this start happening, which is why you can understand why there are certain people that are going, look, I can get a permit in Wyoming and North Dakota. So I'm going to take a gamble on, you know, putting together a pipeline that takes emissions from Illinois and takes it over to North Dakota. You can you can see the logic because at least that's one part of the project that is, you know, very manageable risk, you know? Mm. So yeah, that, that's where it gets uh, on the permitting side. But so maybe they say, look, we'll gamble on the pipeline side and, and see if we can. Yeah. Well, so, certain people have, certain people have different, you know, rationale to where they place their projects. And that's what, you know, we're seeing it. We're, 
we're doing land work in all these different places that you mentioned, you know, for all those reasons. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. hopefully it shakes out. I mean, you, you hate to see that much investment in time, you know, get just thrown into the hopper only to wait. Um, it'll work itself out. And I guess we'll, we'll see. Yeah. I mean, and you know, there's just, there is, as I, as we started this by saying, look, I mean, you know, there's a, a broad desire, I think, societally to to start mitigating our emissions that are going into the air. But if you, it takes every it takes everyone working together for that to happen. So you you know, it it, it takes the permitting side. You can't just have the IRA. I mean, the IRA was great, and it incentivized people and and the emitters to go. Oh, okay, I'm going to capture this. But if you don't have also the permitting side it is it goes a little bit to waste which is which is really tough for for me looking at it from a technology standpoint because um these are things that we've been doing in the oil and gas business and you know the first 28 years of my career uh was in the upstream side and and you know it was a very very familiar process to be able to uh know what it takes to uh put co2 into the ground the the physics are the same there's a lot of the, the technology is the same. We understand uh, the complications on, on safety and all that. And so, you know, hey, this, this feels like a slam dunk. And so you hate to get it to the point where um, you got this great tool and you're just waiting on the government to get their act together. I mean, that's, that's frustrating. And I'm sure a lot of people are frustrated by that. So hopefully we start seeing some movement. I mean, hopefully we really start seeing some progress because I'm a believer in it. Yeah. Yeah. You're definitely passionate about it, Lauren, and, and really appreciate you taking the time today to kind of walk through it. I mean, it's, you answer a lot of questions, you really do a great job of putting it all together. Um, you know, you, you, you started, you know, I met you online, really came to know you online. I mean, what's your, um, obviously you're wanting to educate people and you're wanting to tell the story and, you know, what's your goal? Like, what's your end goal with all this? What do you, what do you see for what's Lauren up to? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, ultimately, I want to be a part of solving these um, these uh, obstacles. I mean, I'm a problem solver, ultimately. And, you know, and, and so that takes creativity. It takes, um, you know, some willingness to be flexible and, and pivot. And so I'm, I'm looking to get in and, you know, help any company that is, is out there wanting to see, you know, how do we put a deal together? Um, I've got a lot of experience putting deals together in the oil and gas side. And so there's a lot of similar principles, you know, everyone's got to win. Everyone's got to, you know, have their needs met. And so you, it takes just creativity and persistence, honestly, to be able to make sure you find the structure where the emitter knows that they are going to be taken care of. And yes, they can invest half a billion dollars or whatever it takes to capture that CO2 and they're on the other side of the table from them, they've got a partner that is going to make sure it gets put away as an example. I mean, you know, they, they have to, these, 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 and it's just, as you can, as, as you can tell, and we've talked about, you know, there's, there's no templates here. There's no, you know, trails that have been already, you know, worked out and no super highways about how to get all this stuff done. So we got to blaze that trail now. And, and, and I'm excited about doing that. And, and that's what I want to get into. And, and really find a way to put people together that can advance these projects. And, if I, and that also means working with government. Government and, and local communities are huge stakeholders here. And, and you know, it takes um, patience and yet also, you know, some persistence in, in working with governments and, and trying to push this along, 
getting, um, answering the questions transparently that are out there, just being super transparent about it. This is not some, uh, this is a great tool for this, uh, this country and, and the world. And so let's, I'm going to go out there and answer those questions, get people comfortable and, and really make these projects happen. And so that's, that's ultimately my goal. And, you know, I was, I've told a few people, I don't know how much CO2 relative to the big issue, how much we emit every year. I'm not sure it's a huge percentage that'll be put into the ground in my t- uh, lifetime, but I tell you what, I want to be a part of saying, look, I blaze the trail. Uh, you know, I was one who helped put together templates and brought together some of the initial deals. And that's exciting um, to be on the forefront of an industry that is developing and, and um, uh, hopefully flourishes and blooms in the future. And I, I'd love to bore my grandkids about telling them about all the things that I, all the deals I helped out do. On this. I'd love to bore them to death with that. <laughs> Let Paul tell you about carbon sequestration. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Oh, man, not again. It's fun stuff to me, though. Yeah, that's right. Well, you, you didn't bore us at all, Lauren. I really appreciate you jumping on with this. I think this was the best uh, explanation of the current state of CCS and where we're at in the energy industry right now. So I really appreciate it. And uh, I, I hope that maybe we'll get to talk to you again in the future about this. But for, for listeners that want to connect with you, how can they find you? You know, the best way is on LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find on LinkedIn. Lauren, L-O-R-E-N, long. And um, yeah, connect up. It's got all my contact information there. It's a great way to do it. So happy to answer questions. And I just appreciate the opportunity. You know, thanks for, for bringing me on here. It's been a huge pleasure. And it's always great to talk about it and have people listen. And I love the conversation today. Very much. Uh, very engaging for me. Same here, Lauren. Thanks, Kurt. Thanks for coming on, man. Enjoyed it. All right. You guys take it easy. Thanks for listening to The Land Department. Check out our website in the show notes or visit dudley-land.com to learn more about us.